0: Well, uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Barkley. Thank you uh, to all of you for your warm welcome this morning. Uh, my name's Tom. I'm from uh, Hillfield Church in Coventry. Uh, it's my first time here uh, with you, so thank you again. Thank you for your, your welcome, for your prayers. Uh, it's really appreciated. Um, and it's, it's my hope, my prayer, that God will use what I have to say to you this morning uh, for his glory and for your, your benefit. Um, do uh, keep your Bibles open uh, at that passage we just read, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Um, I'm conscious that we are we're jumping right into the middle of this book this morning uh, So let me start by just uh, setting the scene for you a bit give you a bit of context um, Chronicles tracks the the history of the kingdom of Judah uh, God's people following its its various kings And in this chapter that we're looking at this morning Judah is ruled by King Hezekiah And Hezekiah is is quite possibly one of the the best kings that these people have had since David and, and Solomon generations earlier He wasn't perfect, um, but he was a good king who who loved God and who wanted to restore real worship in Jerusalem. Hezekiah's kingdom of Judah was the the southern part of uh, what had many generations earlier been the, the much bigger kingdom of Israel. And that that one kingdom of Israel had been made up of 12 tribes, 12 family groups, if you like. And they were ruled first by King Saul and then King David and then King Solomon And during that time, these people prospered and and God blessed them wonderfully. But after Solomon, uh, things went quite badly wrong. The kingdom split in two. Solomon's son Rehoboam came to the throne and he made some very big mistakes early on. And those mistakes caused 10 of the 12 tribes to rebel, to, to break away. And these 10 rebel tribes, they occupied the land in the north of the country. They chose their own king. They set up their own kingdom. And they'd become known by uh, the old name Israel. So you have the, the new kingdom of Israel in the north. And this kingdom included tribes like Ephraim and Manasseh, Zebulun, Asher, Issachar, who uh, we had mentioned in our, in our chapter. Um, meanwhile, uh, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, he reigned over the two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. And they would become known as the kingdom of Judah. And many generations later, Hezekiah would be king of that kingdom of Judah. So we have two kingdoms, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And there were several attempts over the generations to reunite the two kingdoms. Um, some of the kings of Judah, they tried invading the north, but that didn't go very far. Uh, one king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, he tried some different tactics. He tried uh, some marriage alliances with the north. He tried military alliances. He tried setting up joint trade enterprises. But again, none of these things really went very far and the kingdoms remained divided. And in 2 Chronicles 30, in Hezekiah's day, we have what is in some ways another attempt to reunite these two kingdoms. Um, It's not political. The two kingdoms don't join into a single nation again. uh, But there is a, a coming together of north and south in a way that hasn't been seen since the time of Solomon, since before the division. That's what we're told in verse 26. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. So this is a momentous event uh, that we're reading about this morning. It's also in some ways a very unlikely event, uh, because at this point, that northern kingdom of Israel had basically been wiped out. So in around 722 BC, Assyria, who were the superpower of the day. They invaded the northern kingdom. They they conquered its capital city, Samaria, and they took most of the people away into exile. And then the Assyrians resettled the land with other people from across their empire, basically ripping up the the national identity of this northern kingdom of Israel. And so all that you had left by this point was a, a remnant, scattered Israelites here and there who the Assyrians had left behind. But that that northern kingdom of Israel as a kingdom didn't really exist anymore. And scripture tells us that all of this happened because the people of that northern kingdom, they turned against God. They'd worshipped idols. They'd sinned against the Lord and they wanted nothing more to do with him. And so eventually God basically wiped them off the map. And so given that backdrop, it's quite remarkable, I think, that the thing that Hezekiah uses in this chapter to bring this remnant of people back into the fold is worship. It's the worship of God that reunites these people, specifically the Passover in this chapter. So all those armies and the marriages and the the business, they they couldn't keep the nation together in any meaningful way, but the worship of God could. And that, that brings us to what really is our main theme for this morning's message, that God's people should be united in worship. God's people should be united in worship. That's what we see in 2 Chronicles 30, and it's what we should see in the church today. It's the worship of God that should unite God's people. The the, the thing to unite God's church is the fact that we all seek to bring glory and honor to him. The thing that unites us should be our shared love for the Lord Jesus Christ, our desire to see him reigning over all things and to announce to the world that Jesus is Lord. And all of that is expressed in our worship. And to to clarify, by worship, um, I don't only mean what we're doing this morning. I don't just mean going to church, although this is worship. This is absolutely a a form of worship. But worship also has a much broader meaning than that as well. Um, That's the meaning that we get in in Romans chapter 12, verse one, where Paul says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So our, our whole bodies, our whole lives are to be offered up to God in worship. Worship covers everything. It, if you like, it's, it's a way of living. Worship is a way of living. It includes specific times set aside for God, like a, like a church service. Absolutely it does, but it, it's not limited to those things. Worship is something that Christians should be doing on a on a daily basis through everything we do, and it's it's this worship, this desire to live for God, to glorify Him, that should unite us. Um, so, so the title for this morning's message, if you want a title, is "United in Worship," uh, and we're going to break this idea down into five uh, five subheadings, and I think you have these in your bulletin, um, all all built around the letter C to to help you remember, hopefully. Um, So we have the call to worship, first of all, then consecration for worship. And I'll explain what that means when we get there. Um, Then the center of worship, then celebration in worship, and then finally the consequences of worship. Okay, so call, consecration, center, celebration, consequences. So we'll start then with the call to worship. Hezekiah sends out a call to worship in verse five of our passage. It says they decided to send a proclamation, a call throughout Israel from Beersheba to Dan, calling the people to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So this call goes out from Beersheba to Dan, we're told. So that means it goes from the very far south of Judah to the very far north of Israel. It covers both nations. So the call goes out not just to the people within Hezekiah's own kingdom of Judah, but to those outside it, to those in the north too. The call goes out not just to the people of Judah, who in a way are still living under the covenant of a faithful God, but also to those people of northern Israel, the ones who have turned away from God, turned away from his covenant promises. And today there is, there is a call to worship that goes out to all of us. It goes out to those who are still in church, but it also goes out to people who have wandered away from the church. It, it, it goes to the people who, who come to church every Sunday and who are faithfully seeking to love and honor God every day of their lives. Yes, but it also goes out to the person who has wandered away. It goes out to the person who hasn't been to church in months or, or the person who hasn't opened their Bible in years or or the person who, who can't bring themselves to pray anymore. But this call to worship goes out to that person as well. Now of course I I don't really know any of you here this morning, but it's quite obvious you are all in church. Um that's obvious. But that doesn't mean that there isn't someone here who has who has perhaps wandered away or or perhaps feels like they are wandering or, or drifted away from the Lord. You might be in church this morning for the first time in a very long time, I don't know. Um, if that's you, it is it's so so good that you're here. It's so, so good that you're here, and, and you as well, you are called to worship the Lord together with all of us. The people of, of northern Israel, they'd wandered away from God. They'd wandered away from for, for generations. Um, verse 7 calls them unfaithful. Uh, verse 8 calls them stiff-necked or, or stubborn. They'd turned away from God, and for so, so long they'd refused to turn back to him. But Hezekiah says to them in verse 8, Do not be stiff-necked, as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary, which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God, so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. Hezekiah says, Israel, you you may have been unfaithful. You may have turned away. You may have done all sorts of things wrong. But if you return to the Lord, he will return to you, because he is full of grace. Verse 9. If you return to the Lord then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He will not turn his face from you if you return to him. So if, if, if you have wandered from God this morning, come back to him. Worship him again and he will be gracious and, and merciful to you. Seek him again and you will find him. And, and even if you are someone who has never known the Lord, who who's never been, never called yourself a Christian, seek him and you will find him. That This call goes out to you as well. Do not be stiff-necked. Do not stubbornly persist in your sin, but turn around, repent, come to the Lord, confess your sin to him, seek his forgiveness, seek his mercy, worship him. This is the call that that, that goes out today. It's the call that goes out from, from Hezekiah in this passage to those, those wanderers, those people from northern Israel. Hezekiah sent out this call through uh, letters carried by, by couriers or, or, or messengers. But the response to these letters was quite mixed. Look at verse 10. The couriers, the messengers, went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh and as far as Zebulun. This is all places in, in northern Israel. But the people scorned and ridiculed them. Nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh and Zebulun, humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. So some of the people in the north responded well. They they humbled themselves. They they stopped being stiff-necked. They stopped stubbornly turning away from the Lord. They repented. They came to Jerusalem. They worshipped with the rest of the Lord's people. Praise God for that. But some of the people rejected the call. In fact, they didn't just reject it. They scorned it. They ridiculed it. They mocked it. And this is a a really sad thing. It was a sad thing then. It's it's a sad thing now when when those who were once part of the church or appeared to be part of the church at least, but who who turned away from the Lord can be can be like this. The the church isn't perfect. Of course the church itself is not perfect, and you could even say that that maybe attacks on the church can be justified to an extent. But but to reject God, to mock him, to, to reject his salvation, to reject his gospel, to mock the very thing that could save you. To reject Jesus Christ, that is something else entirely. In fact, the the, the book of Hebrews has some very sobering and strong words to to say to these people. Turn there if you you want to. Um, Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 4 says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away to be brought back to repentance because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting Him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful for those, useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. There is judgment. There is judgment that awaits those who who have tasted the gospel, who have heard it, who've been so close to it, but who ultimately reject it. Now, I want to be clear, I'm, I'm not coming to you this morning and saying that that a true Christian can lose their salvation. That's that's not what I've I've come here to say. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But there are those who who have been among God's people, who have heard, who have tasted the gospel, who who may have even professed faith, but who end up turning away. And if that's you this morning, then, then that passage in Hebrews is written to you in many ways. You need to come back. You need to come back before it's too late. Be like the Israelites who, who humbly submitted to God, who turned back to him. Be like them. Don't be like the ones who rejected him. Come back to him. Confess your sins. Seek his forgiveness. Give yourself to him. Worship him again now, and he will be merciful. So that is that is the first point. That is the, the call to worship. Secondly, consecration for worship. Consecration for worship. Now, the word consecrate means to purify or to cleanse or to make holy. Basically, consecrating yourself means getting yourself ready for worship, in a sense. That's what the people of, of Judah and Israel needed to do when they, when they responded to Hezekiah's call. They had to go and prepare themselves to come and worship. Now, do we need to consecrate ourselves before we can worship God today? Well, it sort of depends what you mean by that. We do not need to ritually cleanse ourselves before we can come into church on a Sunday morning. No, we don't. And we don't need to make ourselves perfect before we can worship God. Not at all. And certainly if you are talking about the cross and and, and coming to salvation, you come to Jesus as you are. You you do not need to change yourself before you can receive his grace. But if instead you're talking about those of us who are already walking with the Lord and, and, and who love him and who take worship seriously, then it makes sense, I think, to to prepare ourselves for worship, to prepare ourselves to worship well and to bring glory to God in the way that we worship. Basically, what, what I mean by this is what frame of mind are you in when you step into church on a Sunday morning or, or what's going through your head when you open up your Bible or, or what's your your attitude to that ministry you're involved in during the week, say. These are these are acts of worship. And, and in one sense, we need to consecrate ourselves for them. We need to prepare ourselves when we do them. <clears throat> the people of Israel and Judah, they had to prepare themselves. They had to make sure they, they came to worship in the right way. And part of this made, meant uh, taking some practical steps. So they were going to celebrate the Passover. And according to the law, the Passover had to be celebrated on the 14th day of the first month of the year. But when that that first month rolled around, they weren't ready. That's what verse three says. The people had not been able to celebrate the Passover at the regular time because not enough of the priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. So they couldn't celebrate the Passover in the first month when they were supposed to because they weren't ready. The priests weren't ready. The people weren't gathered together. So what did they do? They They did it in the second month instead. Verse two. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. And I should say that they weren't making up rules here, they weren't making it up as they went along. They're actually following God's law. There's a provision that's in uh, Numbers 9, if you want to turn there later on, um, which allows them to do this. But the point here is that preparing ourselves for worship can sometimes mean changing the way that we worship in, in, in small ways so that we do it in a way that honors God more. Now, of course, we're still coming to God on his terms. We're still worshipping him. But, for example, this might look like changing the time you read your Bible each day. Maybe maybe you try to read your Bible first thing in the morning and actually you find that you just can't think straight first thing in the morning. Try doing it later in the day. See if that helps. Or, Or it might mean if you're able to changing your routine slightly on a Sunday morning so that when you come to church, you are undistracted, ready for worship. We we can't all do that. There are limitations on what we can do, but there are times in each of our lives for for taking those wise and practical steps to make sure we can worship in a way that really does honor God more. So that there are practical ways to, to prepare for worship. There are also ways that we can be preparing our hearts for worship. One specific thing to be aware of when we come to worship, especially, is our idols It's our idols. Look at what the people did in verse 14 of of chapter 30. They removed the altars in Jerusalem and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley outside the city. Uh, They threw out the altars. Now, these weren't altars from God's temple. Uh, These were altars of foreign gods, of false gods that were in other parts of the city. So basically what the people do in verse 14 is they throw out their idols, essentially. And we need to do something similar, don't we? If, if we're to come to worship God in the right spirit, in the right way, we need to, we need to throw out our idols. How, how can we really worship God when there are idols cluttering up our hearts? How, how can we worship God when our, our hearts and our minds are full of love for something else that isn't Him? How can you worship God on a Sunday when all you can think about is, I don't know, maybe your career or your, your hobby or your reputation or, or whatever your idol is? We need to throw these things out. We need to put them out of our our hearts and minds, especially when we come to worship. And we need to do this through through prayer, with with the help of the Holy Spirit and perhaps with a good amount of practical discipline as well. The act of worship starts in many ways with our approach to worship. It starts with your your state of mind when you walk into church on a Sunday. It starts with us removing idols from our hearts so that we can focus our thoughts and our affections on God alone. We need to prepare ourselves for worship. And and why do we do this? Well, we we need to do this because we love the Lord, because we love him, because we want to see him glorified and honored as much as possible, and because he is holy. And the the people of of Israel and Judah who, who gathered for this Passover, they loved the Lord. And so they, they consecrated themselves, they threw out their idols, and they worshipped him. But, but, they did not get everything right. It's important to notice that. They did not get everything right. Verse 17. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites, that's the, the temple servants, had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonially clean and could not consecrate them, the, their lambs to the Lord. Although most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. So many of the people, particularly those who came down from from northern Israel, they hadn't consecrated themselves. They were, they were ritually unclean, which meant, according to God's law, they weren't supposed to keep the Passover, but they did it anyway. They did it anyway. So, How was God going to respond to this? Well, verse 18 again. Hezekiah prayed for them. Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord, who is good, pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he is not clean, according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. So worshipping in the right way is important because God is holy and because we love him. But God is also gracious and compassionate. And we need to remember that. And if our hearts are are set to seek him in worship, if we confess our sins to him, if we earnestly seek to bring him glory, he is merciful to us. And this brings us now to our our third point. Our third point this morning, the center of worship, because at the center of worship is grace. At the center of, of our worship is the grace of God in the in the person of Jesus Christ. The center of worship is Jesus and and the cross. I wonder if you you saw what a, a, a wonderful picture Hezekiah gives us of Jesus in those verses I just read. He prays for the people. Did you see that? Another translation actually says that he interceded for them. And because of Hezekiah's prayer, the wrath of God is turned away. Because of Hezekiah's intercession, the people are not judged for their sin. So, yes, preparing ourselves for worship is important. If we love God, it's right that we make every effort to approach him the right way. But when we fail to do that, as we so often do, if we're honest, well, there's still grace. There is still grace. Jesus Christ still intercedes for us. He still pleads to the Father on our behalf. He still seeks the Father's pardon for us. And God is still gracious and compassionate, and he still forgives So, yes, love the Lord, seek to worship him well, but do not forget his grace. And I should say that this doesn't give us license to worship God in whatever way we want and just ignore his word. No, If, if we know that we're doing or saying or teaching something in our worship that's wrong, we need to correct it. But there is grace to cover our failings. There is grace to cover our failings because God is gracious and God is compassionate and because the penalty for our sin has been paid in the person of Jesus Christ. In, in the passage this morning, we, we see that pictured and, and foreshadowed in the Passover. So the Passover was, was the time when Israel remembered how God had saved them from Egypt, how he'd spared their lives by, by the blood of the Lamb. At the very, very first Passover, when the Israelites were all slaves in Egypt, they sacrificed lambs, and they painted the lamb's blood on their doors so that when God went through Egypt in judgment and he saw the blood on the Israelites' houses, he would pass over them. He would spare them because the lamb had been killed in their place. And and every year since then, the the people were told to sacrifice lambs as a sign of God's grace towards them, as a reminder that God had not judged them because the lamb had been killed in their place. And so this Passover in, in 2 Chronicles 13, Jerusalem, is a celebration of God's grace fundamentally. Grace was at the center of these people's worship. At the center of their worship was the blood of the Lamb. And and as Christians today, at the center of our worship is the blood of the Lamb, is the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross for sinners. At the center of our worship is grace, is the cross, is forgiveness for unworthy sinners. And that's part of the reason why worship unites us so, so strongly, or should do, because at the heart of our worship is this message that we are all sinners in desperate need of a savior. And in worship, we are all focused on that singular truth. In worship, we're all focused on one gospel. We're all focused on one cross. We're all proclaiming with one united voice that Jesus is Lord. And we're all striving to, to glorify one God. We're all seeking to, to live every day of our lives as a, as a living sacrifice to him. So... Ultimately, we're united in worship because we're united in Christ. Jesus is at the center of our worship and Jesus unites the church. And and, and we worship a, a gracious and good God. And that grace, fourthly, this morning, is to be celebrated. Celebration in worship. Our response to this amazing grace of God should be to worship him. And that worship should involve celebration. Now, Of course, there are times... There are times in the life of the church when it's right to mourn or to lament. Our worship should involve a a healthy amount of grieving. That might be grieving over our sin, grieving over the state of our our fallen world, grieving over some specific evil, perhaps. It's right to bring these things to God in worship. But when we see God's grace, when the cross is in view, or then after the grief, eventually, We should find our way to a place of celebration. And yes, it may take us some time to get there. It may do. But eventually, eventually we should all find celebration in worship because, frankly, what other response can we have to God's grace? When all is said and done, if we are Christians, Jesus died for us. And we we should celebrate that in our worship. We celebrate it in church together. We celebrate it through the way that we, we live with lives that ought to be full of thankfulness for the grace that God has richly lavished on us. And the people of of Judah and Israel, they celebrated God's grace in their worship. And they did this in a a, a number of ways. They did this through music. Verse 21 says that they, they sang to the Lord every day of the festival. They also celebrated it through encouraging one another. Verse 22, Hezekiah encourages the people. They also celebrated it through making sacrifices. We see that in verse 24 with the the many thousands of sacrifices that were made. And our worship today ought to involve similar kinds of celebration. We worship through music, don't we? Which so often involves celebrating. We also worship through encouraging each other, through speaking the truth of Christ to one another in love. Reminding each other of the glorious truth that we are unworthy sinners saved by the grace of God. And we, we worship through sacrifices as well. We do. We don't sacrifice animals, obviously, but we do offer up our time, our service, if we're able, our money as well, so that God might be glorified in the church. And that's something that we should be doing joyfully because we should be doing it in response to the amazing grace of God. So ultimately, ultimately, worship should be a joyful thing. And it should be something that unites us as we celebrate God's grace together. And we see this. We see this celebration uniting the people in verse 25, which says the entire assembly of Judah rejoiced along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel from the north, including the, the aliens, the foreigners who had come from Israel and the foreigners who lived in Judah. They all rejoiced together. The people of Judah, the people of Israel, they rejoiced together. And today, those of us who have been in church our whole lives and, and those of us who have perhaps recently returned, recently joined the church, we rejoice together. Verse 25 also says that the priests and the Levites, the, the religious leaders, they rejoiced alongside the rest of the people. And today, elders and, and church leaders, we, you, you rejoice with the rest of the church. Yes, people have different roles to play. But we all worship, we all rejoice together. Verse 25 also says, the aliens, the foreigners from Israel and from Judah rejoice. This is, this is talking about Gentiles, people who, who weren't Israelites, who weren't Jews, worshipping alongside the Israelites. And today, people from all nations, all cultures, all backgrounds, worship God and celebrate his grace together in the church. There are many, many different people in God's church. But if we worship the same God and celebrate the same gospel, then we're united in Christ. Finally, and as we as we finish our last point for this morning. The consequences of worship. What are the consequences of worship? What happens when we worship? And just two things briefly to highlight from the text as we close. First of all, verse 26 There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them. For their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. What a wonderful sight this must have been in Jerusalem, to see people from north and south celebrating and, and, and worship together in a way that had not been seen since the days of Solomon. But more than that, this was worship that was accepted, that was heard by God. Verse 27 says, God heard them for their prayer reached heaven. Through their worship, they had fellowship with God. And how sweet that fellowship must have been, especially especially for those people from northern Israel, for the rebels, for those people who had broken away from, from their brothers and sisters in the south, from the, the people who turned their backs on God's covenant, turned their backs on God's kings, who'd worshipped false gods. Who'd stubbornly persisted in their sin for so long, who'd been conquered, virtually wiped out by a foreign nation, to now be back in Jerusalem, to be worshipping alongside their brothers and sisters from Judah, to be in God's temple of all places, celebrating the Passover again, and and to have their prayers heard by God. What, What a wonderful picture of grace this is, what restoration there is here. And when we today worship God through Jesus Christ, our worship is accepted because of Jesus' righteousness. And we have fellowship with the Lord. Even, even if we are, even if we've wandered far away from God, like those northern Israelites, if we come back, if we worship Him, if we repent, we have fellowship with Him. And because of the blood of Jesus, there is grace to cover our failings. There's grace to forgive our wandering and our, our rebellion. There is grace that welcomes us back into the Father's arms. So worship brings us into fellowship with God. second thing to highlight, chapter 31, verse 1, worship changes us. When all this had ended, the Israelites who were there went out to the towns of Judah, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. Those are idols. They destroyed the high places and the altars throughout Judah and Benjamin, and in Ephraim and Manasseh. After they had destroyed all of them, the Israelites returned to their own towns, and to their own property. So after this Passover, there's, there's a great revival that happens. People tear down their idols. This happened in Judah and Benjamin in the south. It also happened, we're told, in Ephraim and Manasseh in the north. So in other words, across all of Judah and Israel, people throw out their idols and they rededicate themselves to God. The worship in Jerusalem had changed them. And real worship changes us. It's not always as dramatic perhaps, as what we see here in Chronicles, but real worship does change us. Because, frankly, how could it not when it's all about the gospel? How can how can singing the glories of the, of the cross week after week, or, or praying every day, or, or studying God's word, or, or seeking to live every moment of our lives for the sake of his glory, how can all these things not have any effect on us, if we're honest? When these things are done sincerely, when they're done in spirit and in truth, And when we, like the Israelites, set our hearts to seek God, we are transformed. We are changed. Real worship changes us. So, summing up then, to close, God's people are united in worship. We are all called to worship him. Even if we've drifted far away, it's important to remember that. It's also important that we seek to prepare ourselves, consecrate ourselves in a way for worship. Approach worship in the right spirit, in the right way. But we also need to remember that there is grace. To cover our shortcomings and that grace is there because of the cross and the cross stands at the center of our worship the common center that all Christians share. And worship is the way that we celebrate this glorious grace together and worship has consequences. It it brings us into fellowship with God and it changes us. And one final short thought as we finish. Worship is what we were made for as well. And it's what we'll spend eternity doing. When Jesus Christ returns and he takes his people up into glory, then we will stand together before his throne and we will worship him. And we'll stand alongside Hezekiah. We'll stand alongside the faithful of Israel and Judah, alongside the apostles, the disciples, alongside Christians and and believers from every age. And we will worship the God who saved us. The book of uh, Revelation pictures this in a wonderful way. I'll I'll finish with these words. Turn there if you want to. It's Revelation chapter 7. Or just listen. Revelation, chapter 7, verse 9, and we'll finish with these words. This is the Apostle John writing. He said, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes. Okay.